to August, and we started this sermon series on Ephesians, and we started with Ephesians chapter 1. And in those 10 verses, in Christ was mentioned 11 times. 11 times in 10 verses. So I decided that let's do a a sermon series on in Christ, because obviously it must have been important. And uh, and so we're calling it the in Christ series. Uh, It's going to be six parts. Number six is going to be strong in Christ. Five is wisdom in Christ, life in Christ, power in Christ. And before I get to today's message, does anybody remember what the first week was? Say, what's that? Identity in Christ, exactly. Identity in Christ. And, and we talked about being chosen. We talked about being blessed and highly favored, being adopted, being enlightened, being wealthy, being sealed. Uh, that was the last time we talked, and it's all in Christ. Today we're actually going to focus, focus on the first 10 verses of the second chapter in Ephesians. So go ahead and flip to Ephesians 2 while I tell you a story about these three gentlemen. These three gentlemen one time went out on a golf outing. They were good friends all the way through high school, and they decided to go out and play a round of golf. And as they were traveling home, they got into a massive car wreck on the I-95, and all three of them were killed instantly. And as they died, they went up to the pearly gates, and whatever your belief is about who the gatekeeper is, if it's St. Peter or if it's Jesus or whoever, the gatekeeper is up there, and he asks the three men, he says, I'm going to ask you one question. As you're laying in your coffin, what do you want people to say about you? And the first guy, he was a professor over at Penn, and and he was scholarly, scholarly, very smart. And he said, I want people to say he was a good man who taught very well. And he was a, a loving father to his children. And the next guy got up, and he was a surgeon. And, and he said, I want them to say... He was a great surgeon. He helped many people. What a great doctor he was. And he was a loving husband. He was great. That's what I want them to say. And they get to the third guy. And without even missing a beat, he says, what I want them to say is, hey, look, he's moving. (laughs) The fact is, not everybody is ready to die. Not everybody is, is comfortable with that. It's obviously a joke, but Shakespeare once said that many a true word has been spoken in jest, right? We use jokes, but we always say there's a little bit of truth in there. So today, we're going to talk about death, people being dead. Uh, There's some that fear death, and that's why they don't want to leave this world. There's some that enjoy life so much that they're not ready to give it up. And there's some that just, they don't even know. They're just walking around. The, the sad truth of the matter is that many people are already dead. They just don't know it. If you look in our neighborhood, we are surrounded by people that are dead. Spiritually dead. No longer thirsting for things of God. No longer seeking things of God. Walking around dead. But guess what? 
it's not just Kensington. You could go down to Center City and see businessmen on their way to meetings that are dead. They are spiritually dead. They are dead inside. They don't even know it. You could pick any profession in the world, and there is going to be people that are walking around dead. A shell of the life that God intended for them. So how can that be? What causes this Walking dead. So we're going to open up our package. We're going to unpack it a little bit. We're going to drill a little bit deeper. So join me in Ephesians 2. We're going to cover the first 10 verses. Ephesians 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that your word reaches through the ages, that it carries the same weight today as it did when they were written by Paul so long ago. So Father, I ask right now that you speak powerfully through the message and that you would just be present. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Soften our hearts that this word from you may find purchase and bear fruit. We thank you and we praise you in the perfect name of your son. Amen. So the first three verses in this chapter illustrate something very, very well. And and it's what I call the three killers of your soul. The three causes of spiritual death. We know that spiritual death is caused by sin. So really, we're going to drill down and see What it is that these three things cause us to sin. What three things cause us to sin. The first one is found in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. The first one is the world. The world is the first thing that will try to kill your soul. But let me explain what I mean when I say the world. Because the fact is, the world was created by God. And it was created beautifully. 
What I'm talking about when I talk about the world is I'm talking about a system or a way of life apart from God. The world. It's apart from God's plan. The world has its own set of rules. The world has its own value system. The world has its own morals. Or, if you're like me, you look around, the world has its own lack of morals. The world has its own beliefs. And again, this is the world that I'm talking about is a system or a way of life that is apart from how God intended it to be. The world likes to distract us. The world will tell you, you should chase money. You should chase fame. You should chase the things of this world that are going to fade away. The world will distort truth. If we look at our DNA, there's a chromosomal difference between men and women. Our very DNA shapes us. But the world is so distorted that now it says you can choose what you want to be. It's distortion. It's a system or a way of life that is apart from God. The world is anything that is going to pull you away from God. That can be very good stuff. A family, a wife, a good job that you love. If it is pulling you away from God, that's not a good thing. And it will kill your soul eventually. A few years ago, uh, long before I had kids, my wife and I decided to go on a trip with her sisters. She has an older sister and a younger sister. Older sister lives out in Colorado, younger sister in New Jersey. We fly out to Colorado and we decide that we're going to get into canoes and we're going to paddle for 10 days straight in Moab, Utah. If you've never been to Moab, it is beautiful. I mean, you can see... This is called the Valley of the Gods. Um, this is actually called Turk's Head. And, and what it is, is there's a river. And it's called the Green River. And it travels through the desert. It winds through the desert. And it actually connects with the Colorado River at the confluence. And it's actually one of the rivers that Lewis and Clark traveled on. And so we decide we're going to fly out to Colorado. We're going to load up the canoes. And we're going to spend 10 days out on the river paddling through these canyons. In the middle of nowhere, it was beautiful. And one day we're paddling, and, and the whole trip, 10 days, we probably only saw four other people for 10 whole days. So you are out there on your own. And we found a sandbar one day, and, and it was so beautiful, we said, we're going to camp here tonight. And so we pulled up on the sandbar, and we stayed. And the next day, we're like, man, this is such a good spot, let's just stay an extra day. If we have to paddle harder Tomorrow we will, but let's just enjoy our time. So we're all sitting around. We had a campfire. We're just hanging out. And um, my wife gets up, and a gust of wind takes her, this chair she had. It was, it was like an inflatable chair. And it just, gone. Right? Right into the river. Now I looked, and I'm like, wow, that, that stinks. That chair's gone. And my brother, my, my brother-in-law, being a man of action that he is, he busts off his shirt and he dives into the water and he's swimming. And, and I'm standing on the edge like, okay, we lost a chair and a brother-in-law. <laughs> but he catches up to the chair. And he's so excited. He, I got it. And we're all, yeah, he's got it. And he's still floating downriver. 
So Scott, my, my other brother-in-law, grabs the canoe and he jumps in and he throws me a paddle. And we, we paddle down to Timmy. And, he, and he's swimming, trying as best he can with a chair and he's swimming upstream. Show of hands, who thinks that Timmy was successful? Yeah, he wasn't. So we get there, we pull him into the canoe. He's exhausted because he was just swimming against the current and getting nowhere. And me, being the good brother-in-law that I am, I handed him my paddle so that he could paddle for me. <laughs> and we took the canoe and we paddled upriver slowly, but we made it, right? And that's a perfect example of this world. This world is going that way, and we, like salmon, are trying to swim upstream. <laughs> but it's interesting because as we're in the canoe, we're making way. And, and, and I get the paddle, and I'm like, well, okay, now we're even with where we started. Let's cross the river, because we were by the edge. And, and we got out, and as soon as we hit the middle of that river... We started floating back again. Because the middle is where the current is the strongest. Folks, stop trying to swim against the current in the hardest part of the river. So a few years ago, uh, it was July 4th weekend, we went up to visit my parents in Buffalo and help work on their house. And we were working on the house. Kareem was there. Jerry was there. Several of the young adults were there. And, and so we decided to take July 4th off from work and go visit this place. Does anybody know what that is? Niagara Falls, right? So we took the black squirrel, that's Kareem, and we went to the falls. Does anybody know what this side is called? Horseshoe Falls. Why do you know? How do you know that? Well done. Does anybody know what this side is? It's the at wet. I think we're all done, dear Heavenly Father. Uh, now, that is the American side. It's, it's called Bridal Falls. And, uh, and it's, it's awesome, and it's powerful, and it's crazy, and it's huge, and it's fast. Um, show of hands, has anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? Right? That when you stand on the edge, and it's just, like, powerful. How powerful is it? Well, listen to this. 75,750 gallons per second go over to the American side. Let me say that again. 75,750 gallons a second go over the side. On the horseshoe side, the Canadian side, 681,750 gallons. Picture those milk jugs, 681,750 milk jugs a second go over that. Got any strong swimmers here? Anybody want to try to swim against that? So here's a picture of us standing right by the Niagara River, and we're looking at the current and we're watching it. And I said to the guys, Kareem, do you remember what I said? I said, hey, who wants to go stand in the river? And they looked at me like I was crazy. 
Now, it helps that you have a guy that grew up there that knows Niagara Falls pretty well and knows where he could get around gates to go stand in the water. So, here is a picture of those brave souls that decided to stand in the Niagara River. If you look, that is all mist. If you look by his head, that is the falls. 200 yards. We stood 200 yards away from the edge of the falls. Here's Jesse and Liza standing 200 feet away from the edge of the falls. Here is Megan and her now husband, Jared, 200 yards from the edge of the falls. You see, it is possible to stand in a place that goes against the current. If you are smart. If you understand, I could get swept away if I don't tread carefully. If you understand that by staying near the edge, staying in your word, staying in fellowship, staying on your knees, praying often, that keeps you from that middle current of this world that wants to steal your soul. So yes, you can stand against the current, the soul stealer. The second stealer of your soul, the second killer of your soul that leads to sin is the spirit, the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work and those that are disobedient. The spirit, the ruler, Satan. Satan's name literally translates to slanderer or accuser. This enemy is constantly slandering God and his children. That's us. He's constantly accusing us. Even if we confess our sins and God forgives us, he still brings it up. Because that's what he likes to do. He's an accuser. There's a show on TV that I really like. It's called Penn and Teller Fool Us. For those that don't know, Penn and Teller are magicians, right? And there is a show, and they've been magicians for years, performers for years. And what they do is they have people come on stage, performers. Not magicians, performers. And these performers get up on stage and they do their best trick. Not magic trick. And they use misdirection. They use deception. They use sleight of hand. These performers are doing a trick. And Penn and Teller sit there and they watch the trick. And then they talk to each other. And then they turn to the performer and they tell that performer exactly how they did it. So the idea is the performers are doing their best to fool some of the best people in the game. Folks, the enemy is going to use misdirection. He is going to use deception. He is going to use sleight of hand to fool us. The original pen and teller, God, Jesus, and his word, knows all of his tricks. He knows when we're being misdirected. 
He knows when we're being deceived and lied. That's what they do. So, when I was in seminary, there was a ping pong table downstairs and we would get breaks from class. And, and I would go downstairs and I would play ping pong, right? Except here's the problem. There was a lot of Koreans that went to my seminary. I don't know if y'all have ever played ping pong against a Korean. Yeah, they're, uh, yeah. Uh, the other, if I could give you advice, stay away from the Koreans when you play ping pong. Um, I would also suggest staying away from Hispanics. Um, really, just stay away from anybody that's not white. Uh, because they're just going to smoke you. But uh, there was this one Korean guy, and I would play him. And, and, and I knew, I knew what he was going to do. He was going to put spin on the ball and make me look like an idiot when he'd hit it to me because I would try to swing at it and completely miss. I knew he was going to do that. And yet he did it constantly. Tone, you got, you got sound? This guy is called Jake the Snake. This, these are professional ping pong players. But this guy, watch this guy. They all know it's coming. This is my favorite one. Watch this. This guy's holding his own. Woo, spin around. Watch this, watch this, watch this. Whoop. Now wait, wait, he's not even done yet. Ready? Oh, 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 I got it. No, you don't. Sit down. The fact is, we know that the ball is going to be coming at us. But that's what the enemy does, is he puts a little bit of a spin on it, just enough to make us either freeze or go the wrong direction. Some of you don't, still don't know what I'm talking about. Let me tell you. Maybe you've heard the enemy say that you're not good enough. Maybe you've heard him say, no one cares about you. No one cares. You can't do it. Just give up. You'll always be a... Somebody fill that in for me. You'll always be a loser, an addict, a failure, disappointment. That's what the enemy does. He tells us all these things. You can't change. You aren't worth loving. Martin Luther said this so well. He said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head. But you could keep them from building a nest in your hair. You can't stop the enemy from flying over and putting thoughts in your head. But you can stop him from building a nest there. Third killer of the soul. Verse 3. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The next one 
is our flesh. Our flesh will kill our soul because it is weak and it wants us to sin. Does anybody know who these guys are? Siegfried and Roy, and what are they most famous for? Well, we're going to get to that. That's what, that's what he's most known for now. But back when I was growing up, they were lion tamers. They performed tricks with lions. But just like Ryan said when he jumped the gun a little bit, this is Roy Horn. Roy Horn, on his 59th birthday, decided to do a show for all of his friends. And this tiger, this white tiger right here, it mauled him. It got him. It got him good, almost killed him. To the point where even today, he's still not right. And it was funny because at the time, all the experts had an opinion on what happened. Oh, this tiger went this. The tiger went crazy. The tiger wasn't obedient. The tiger... And Chris Rock had the best response. Chris Rock said, that tiger didn't go crazy. That tiger went tiger. The flesh is instinctual. The flesh does what the flesh wants. The thing that separates us from the animals is we don't have to give in to that instinct. We don't have to give in to those primal urges. That tiger went tiger. That tiger just did what tigers do. God has given us five senses, folks. Vision, hearing, smell, taste, touch. Now, we're going to play a little game. Pavlov, scientist, used to ring a bell, give the dogs a treat. Ring a bell, give the dogs a treat. One day he rang the bell with no treat, and the dogs were like, yo, where's that treat? So, I'm going to prove to you guys, some of you, most of you, are Pavlov's dogs. Because I'm going to show you something. I'm going to tempt you guys. What's this? Oh. Anybody else? Anybody else like Reagan? Right? Right? Just, just the look of it. Just my eyes when I look at that. I'm like, yeah. That's good. That's good. That's pleasing to the eyes. If I put up this picture, some of you guys can actually hear it cooking. You can hear it sizzling. Now, some of you guys could probably, sitting right now, could probably smell it. Some of you guys are probably like, your mouths are already watering. I know this because that's how I am. I give over. It's just a tiger being a tiger, and that's bacon. Now, if I give in to my animalistic instincts and I eat 12 pounds of bacon, which I would love to do, an hour later, I'm going to have heartburn. If I do it constantly, six months, a year from now, I'm going to have a heart attack. The fact is, we are given these senses, but the flesh is weak and loves to fail. God has given us these senses, and if we allow them to run wild with us, it's destructive. It's a soul killer. Men, I'm going to talk to the men for a second. Ladies, you can listen. You can't say nothing. Men, what are these? Eyes. Men, 
These things will get you into a lot of trouble. I'm speaking from experience. Because I have gone down to the shore. I have been in Hawaii. I have been to California. Those eyes will get you in trouble. And it's not the first look that gets you, gentlemen. It's that second look. All of these five senses. It's not the initial one that gets you. It's when we start to dwell on our thoughts. Because the flesh is weak. But here's the beautiful thing. God has an answer for it. In Romans 12, 2, he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, right? That first killer we talked about. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And as if that wasn't enough, in Philippians 4, 8, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, what is ever true... Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Again, 2 Corinthians 10.5, the last part of that says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We don't have to live as animals because we can hold our thoughts and our minds captive for God, for Jesus, for beautiful things. Colossians 3, 2 through 5. This is worth repeating. Set your things, your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death... Therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, that fleshly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. These three killers pull us into sin and they destroy our very souls. Our our souls come with the passage just said, dead, dead in sin. This passage tells us three things that we need to understand in terms of a plan to fight these three killers. The first step is being dead in sin. That's us. Folks, everyone in this room is either dead or has been dead. Dead in sin. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest. We were by nature deserving of wrath. Folks, we are in Halloween. And Halloween... Zombies are everywhere. The walking dead. There are times when I'm outside and I literally see the walking dead. Zombies have become so popular that even Disney came out with a zombie musical. I know this because I watched it. Zombies living with the regular people and they don't get along and they're all just one big happy family by the end of it but it's a musical zombies 
dead. Fact is, we are all dead. We are all walking dead. We are separated from the love of God. And it, it reminded me of a story that I read years ago uh, in the Marine Corps. I did cold weather training and they brought in this Canadian park ranger to talk about cold weather training. And he was, he was part of the Canadian rangers. And what they are is they're a group of outdoorsmen and, and they go out into the back country in Canada. So he was up in the Rocky Mountains. And, and what they did is they were started in like the 19 hundreds, 1920s, they went around Canada and they built these cabins as outposts. So there was this guy, John Elliott, and he was out doing his routine patrol looking for avalanches in the winter. And when he would find an avalanche, he would search and make sure everybody was okay. And if he found an area that was going to be an avalanche, he would set it off and and get it to, to fall. So one day he's out doing his job And he's been hiking around all day, and a storm rolls in quick. And it rolls in quick, and he gets trapped in this storm. But he knows that there's a cabin. So he's searching for the cabin in this blizzard, and he finds it. And he gets in, and he opens the door. And when you hear the story, when he recalls the story, he was so exhausted that when he found the cabin, he opened the door and laid down. He laid down to catch his breath. And before long... He became disoriented. He got really tired. And then he felt this overwhelming warmth spread through his body. And then his faithful companion, a dog that he traveled everywhere with, started barking, started biting, started nudging him, started to arouse him. And he realized, I need to get up. So he woke up. He started a fire and took off all of his wet clothes. And as he's sitting here telling us at this training about what it looks like to freeze to death, here's what he said to us. You will get to a point when hypothermia starts setting in where you will be disoriented. You will be confused. You will be numb. And at some point in that process, your body starts to feel warm. You start to go to sleep and it feels really comfortable. Folks, that is us being dead in sin. We have become disoriented. We have laid down to get rest. And now we are so numb to sin that we embrace it. We embrace it. But the thing with him is he didn't die that day because he had a faithful friend that woke him up, that pulled him up. Brothers and sisters, we got to wake up our brothers and sisters that are dead. It was interesting, after the first service, a, a, a brother of ours came to me and he said, listen, I needed to hear that because I've been spiritually dead. I've been showing up for Sundays, off and on, but I'm dead. I'm just numb. And he said, you've challenged me to get into my word. You've challenged me to get into fellowship. You've challenged me to wake up, shed the clothes, start a fire, and stand near it. Guys, that's what it's about. Step one, we're dead to sin. The Bible tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And, and, and it also tells us that the wages of sin is death. What do we get with sin? We get death. But the gift of God is eternal life. We deserve 
that. But here's where it gets interesting. Step two, rich in mercy. That's God. So us, dead in sin, rich in mercy, that's God. Ephesians 2, 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy. And then it picks up again in 9 and 10. It says, not by works so that we can't boast. Folks, there's nothing you can do. Let me say that again. There's nothing you can do to fix yourself. Me saying, well, hey, at at least I'm not one, that doesn't fix you. You saying, well, I'm I'm a good person, that doesn't fix you. This is all about God and his mercy. So you can't boast in it. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is about mercy. When I was sitting down trying to figure out how I could best describe mercy, what I came up with is you don't get what you deserve. Mercy is you don't get what you deserve because the fact is we all deserve punishment. Bottom line. That's what we deserve because we're filthy, wretched sinners. But he takes it a step further and gives us what we don't deserve, the riches, the grace, the mercy. It's not like he's like, okay, I ain't going to punish you. It's like, I'm not going to punish you. In fact, I'm going to take you out for a steak dinner. Dude, it's all about God. It's all about him. I said it last time when we were talking. I said one of my favorite parts of this chapter is those two words. But God. And and, and I'm going to tell you it exactly the way I said it last time I preached because it was worth repeating. When I say I was lost and destined for a life that had no ultimate meaning... This is where you say, but God. I was dead spiritually with no way to establish a relationship with the supreme being and creator of the universe. I was living according to the customs of this world. A world that ended up leaving me empty and pursuing things that once I actually got them, just gave me more emptiness. But God, say it with some authority because this is huge. I was rebellious and disobedient to the one who created and gave himself for me. I had no way to pull myself from the slavery that I knew my soul would ultimately destroy me. But God, rich in mercy stepped into Satan's slave market and ransomed me and rescued me and he paid for me with his own blood. It is not anything I can do. It is but God and his mercy and his love. Dead in sin, but God. Living in a world, a horrible sinner, falling for the evil schemes of the enemy, giving into my own flesh, But, God, he never makes mistakes. It's his grace, it's his mercy that saves us, plain and simple. 
Stop trying to earn your way. It'll never happen. Which brings me to my third point. We're dead in sin. That's us. But God, rich in mercy. That's God. Alive in Christ. That's where we are alive in. In Christ. We can't do it ourselves. But God did it for us by sending his son. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace that we've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Guys, I'm alive. I'm alive because I've put my trust in Christ. Is anybody else here alive? Because I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. Are you alive? And start acting like it. Because we got a bunch of Lazaruses here. Lazarus was dead. And Jesus shows up and he becomes alive. We have a ton of Lazarus people here. You don't believe me? There's two right there. You don't believe me? Oh, there's another one that's alive in Christ. Still don't believe me? There's another one that's alive in Christ. Wait, wait, there's more. This is just our most recent Lazarus project where they are alive in Christ. Folks, this is amazing stuff. We are alive in Christ, which means we should be following him, living for him. There was a man who lived for Christ. His name was William Whiting Borden. Anybody ever hear that name? Lizzie Borden, that's close. She killed everybody. So now, so now let's, let's flip the script. He was an heir to the Borden fortune. He, uh, he was set to inherit billions. I don't mean millions, billions back in the day. This is 1913 that he died. So billions back then, forget about it. So he went to Yale and he was saved. He became saved by D.L. Moody and said, I'm going to start living for Christ. And that's exactly what he did. He felt the call to go worship and, and lead Muslims to Christ. Way back in the day. And he went and he told his parents, Hey, my plan is to go be a missionary to Muslims. And they were like, yeah, well that's dumb. But he went. He went and he did it. And when he was in his training, he was training in Egypt... He contracted spinal meningitis, and he died. And when he died, they found his Bible. And in his Bible, they found these notes. And in it, they found one note, and it just had two words. It said, no reserve. And they looked at the date, and the date was written shortly after he renounced his fortune in favor of living in Christ. At a later point, he wrote the words, no retreat. 
And if you looked at the date, it was shortly after his father told him, you will never come back to the Borden family. You leave now, that's it. You're on your own. And then just before he died, he wrote, no regrets. No regrets. These are the words of a man who know that even in his old world of wealth and family fortune, that he was dead. He knew that. He also knew that if God was willing to give up his son Jesus for a sinner, then he had to be willing to give up his earthly fortunes to reach the lost. And he had no regrets about it, about living for Christ, because he was alive in Christ. Fact is, Jesus left his heavenly home. John 3.16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal. Why was Jesus willing to give up his heavenly home? Why? That's an honest question. Why was he willing to do it? Because he so loved. He so loved us wretched sinners that he gave up paradise. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Tells us in John 10.10 that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. I read an author several years ago. And I love what I, I read, so I wrote it down. He was a preacher in Oregon, W.B. Henson. And he said... Thinking of the fullness and duration of this wonderful life, W.B. Hinson, a great preacher, spoke from his own experience just before he died. And he said, I remember a year ago when a doctor told me, you have an illness which you won't recover. And I walked out to where I live, five miles from Portland, Oregon, and I looked across at the mountain that I love. I looked at the river which... I rejoiced, and I looked at the stately trees that are always God's own poetry to my soul. Then in the evening, I looked up into the sky where God was lighting his lamps, and I said, I may not see you many more times, but mountain, I shall be alive when you are gone. And river, I shall be alive when you cease running towards the sea. And stars, I shall be alive when you have fallen from your sockets in the great downpulling of this material universe. Guys, we are alive right now. And Jesus said, I've come to give you life to the fullest. But he doesn't stop there. The fact is, like, like W.B. Henson knew, we are going to live forever. After all of this is gone, we are going to live forget- together forever because of Jesus. Join me in prayer as the worship team comes forward. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace and mercy, thanking you for who you are. Father, we know that we are, or once were, dead in sin. The powers of this world, the weakness of our flesh, the enemy that lurks like a lion, bent on our destruction, has led us to death. We also know that in your richness of mercy and grace, you've created a way 
a way for us to be alive again. Your plan and your purpose to save us was through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son. Your word tells us that if we confess with our mouth that we're sinners and we ask your son into our hearts to save us, that you'll be faithful to make us alive in Christ and to give us eternal life. Father, if there's anyone here today that hasn't done that, I pray that they make that confession right now, right where they sit. Lord, it's, just, it's simple. And if you're sitting in the audience right now and you're feeling some kind of way, Lord, I ask that they just confess it right now, that they, that they, right where they sit, they just admit that we're sinners. If that's you right now and you're sitting in the seat and you, you haven't made a commitment, just to yourself, confess to God that you're a sinner. It, it, and admitting that, We've sinned and that you no longer desire to live a sinful, dead nature. Lord, we thank you for that confession and we, we repent and we ask for your forgiveness. If you haven't yet done it, just ask the Lord for forgiveness. Lord, we, we know that confession and forgiveness is just part of your plan. And the next step is believing what your word tells us. We believe in our hearts that Jesus died for us, was buried, and rose from the, the grave. Again, just to yourself. And God, admit that you believe these things about Jesus to be true. God, we know that as the creator of the universe, you can do anything you desire, and yet you never once force yourself on us. We're given a choice. If you haven't yet, I encourage you, Lord, right now we invite you into our lives. We ask you to come into our hearts. We ask that you send the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. Lord, for those that have prayed this today, prayed this same prayer yesterday or years ago, Lord, we seek your strength to swim against the current of this world. We ask you that you protect us from the enemy that wants our destruction. Father, we especially pray for strength against the weakness of our flesh. Your word tells us that your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Father, it's in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ that we are alive in Christ. It's in these, his name that we pray. In your Son's perfect and holy name. Amen.